Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate 17th President Brian W. Casey. President Casey earned a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Economics at the University of Notre Dame, and then went on to earn a law degree from Stanford University Law School. He joined Davis, Polk, and Wardwell, and practiced law in New York City and London. He then decided to leave the world of law and attended Harvard University, where he earned his PhD in the history of American civilization. After graduation, Casey spent about four years as assistant provost at Brown University, and in 2005, he returned to Harvard as an associate dean for academic affairs in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He served in that capacity until DePaul University called, and in 2008, he would become that school's 19th president, a role he held for eight years before becoming Colgate's president on July 1st, 2016. President Casey has accomplished much in just a few short years, including the construction of three major buildings, two 100-bed residence halls, Jane Pynchon Hall and Burke Hall, and a new center for careers and entrepreneurship, Benton Hall. President Casey also led a year-long series of events in celebration of the university's bicentennial. He, along with senior administrators, the board of trustees, and the university faculty, have developed a comprehensive vision for Colgate titled the Third Century Plan, which sets a long-term course for the university. Through the Third Century Plan, Colgate will increase its reach and reputation through significant investments in students, faculty, and the campus. President Casey, welcome to 13. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'll dive uh, right in here. And I guess before we get to some specific Colgate questions, I think um, it'd be nice for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. Um, As an undergraduate at Notre Dame, you were the captain of the swim team and uh, specializing in the 200-meter butterfly. Uh, As a senior, you earned the award of Scholar Athlete of the Year. Most mornings, you still swim at Colgate. Can you tell us a little bit about your morning workout routine and maybe what you think about as you're swimming laps in the Lineberry Natatorium? Well, you've done your homework. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I try to swim, you know, four or five times a week. Um, I mean, obviously for physical benefits, but it's more, more it's mental. Um, there's something about it. I get into a pool and I immediately move into a different space. Um, I you know I do I go over the day I go over what's going on. Um, what's interesting I would say the kernel of almost every major speech that I've given, both at DePaul and now here, has come to me in a pool. I I actually construct almost all my speeches in my head in a pool, um, and all of a sudden I'll be swimming. I'm like, there's the idea for that speech. That's what I really want to talk about. Um, what people don't realize is every speech. Um, that I give has a title, even though I never say what the title is, but I know what the title is. And there'll always be a moment when I'll be swimming along and I'll be like, there it is. There's a title. Um, Claudia, who was my assistant for my first three years here, uh, knew that I was a better person when I swam. So every now and then she would rearrange my schedule. And all of a sudden I'd find myself <laughs> at lunch. I'd look at my calendar at lunch and I'd see pool. And I'm like, oh, Claudia is sending me to the pool. And she was right every time. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. You spent a little bit more than four years working as a lawyer in the private sector. What kind of law did you practice, and why, ultimately, did you decide to leave the profession? Um, I was a very classic Wall Street 
financial lawyer. Um, did a lot of work for Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Uh, did banking transactions, initial public offerings, securities offerings, mergers and acquisitions. As classic a Wall Street um, practice as you can get. Now, obviously, I was a I was a young associate in a big firm, um, so I wasn't leading my own multi-billion dollar practice. But that's the sort of work I was doing, and 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 it was it was it was good work, and I, I'm glad I did it because I learned a whole lot about capital and balance sheets and um, how money works, and that's always a good thing to learn. But uh, I knew I wasn't in the right place. I, I could feel myself um, just finding myself just not fully there, not fully present, and I, I knew that, that I needed to make some change, which was an odd thing for me because my whole life up to that point had been so, you know, hit your mark, hit your mark, hit your mark. And then I said, I need, I need to go where I'm happier. And it really boiled down to the conclusion I came to, which is I'm happy on a campus. And um, with the level of sophistication that is shockingly low, I said, people on campuses have PhDs. I should get one of those. Uh, and so I, I went up to Harvard, uh, started a PhD in history, and... I've never left. Uh, so to connect your first question and your second question, uh, just a few months ago, I was on the phone with my brother, uh, who also was a swimmer, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm driving back from the pool. And he said to me, you know, Brian, at around eight years old, you realize you like swimming and school, and you haven't stopped that. And I said, no, I haven't. So I'm, uh, you know, winning. So. <laughs> How would you describe your presidential style? And who and what were the major influences that helped mold you into the person you are today? I'm thinking books, mentors, mm -hmm. colleagues, mm -hmm. things like that. Well, it's really hard to try to um, describe your own style because perhaps what I think it is versus how it's received might be different. I think people probably think I'm um, an odd combination of intense and available. I, On the one hand, I'm I do think I come across as driven and I come across as uh, uh, exacting in certain ways, but I'm also I'm also not hierarchical in other ways. So I think it's uh, interesting. I must be very confusing, but it's, um, it's, it's both a combination of, whoa, he likes things certain ways and he's very driven, but he also seems available and present on the campus. So I, that, that might uh, – but I'd leave it to others to decide how it is. Um, oh, I have a very clear, clear set of mentors and books that meant a lot to me. When I was um, when did this when I was in law school, Henry Rozovsky, who was a very important dean at Harvard, wrote a book called The University and Owner's Manual. And I remember seeing it in the Stanford uh, bookstore, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, sh I should read this book, which is clearly was a harbinger of like what was going to happen. I'm in law school reading books about how universities <laughs> are run. I remember reading this book and thinking, this is incredible. And then Bill Bowen, who was the long-standing president of Princeton, had a book, a series of books on on um, governance and how decisions are made on the university campus. And I, I read that too. Sounds fun. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I can totally geek out on that. Uh, there was also a, a really wonderful book um, uh, by Paul Venable Turner called Campus, an American Planning Tradition. It was a history of American campuses. Another book I read in law school, I, 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 why it took me five more years to realize I belonged on a campus when I was reading all these books. and uh, So I had a series of books I remember reading um, that really just always interested me. But then when I, when I, when I moved into administration, 
I had three remarkable mentors, just one after the other. The first was uh, when I when I was at Brown, I, I started in one area, but I ended up working quite closely with the president's office. And uh, Ruth Simmons came in as president of Brown, and she was marvelous and incredible. She was a driven person who fundamentally altered Brown University, made it profoundly better. And I remember just observing her and watching how she entered a room, how she thought about things, how she presented herself, how she presented the university to the world. And I just, I remember thinking, I'm in this, I'm in the vicinity of a genius of, of administration. And, uh, um, and she remains a friend to this day, but I, I was terrified of her for, for, for her first couple of years, but because she was exacting and she was challenging. She just was going to make everyone work hard and make the institution better. So that was the first one. And then, um, and then I moved over in the provost office, and the provost at Brown at the time was Bob Zimmer, who went on quite famously to become the president of the University of Chicago. And so for many years, I worked directly under Bob, and that's where I learned how to provost. People don't know what provosts do. Provosts are think about the intellectual life of the university and faculty programs and how you improve a faculty, support a faculty, how you start new academic initiatives. And for whatever reason, Bob um, really tucked me under his wing and, 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 and it quite specifically and intentionally mentored me. And uh, I learned so much about faculty, working with faculty just from someone who was so good at it. What's interesting is that Bob, um, after I left him to go back to Harvard, he worked, uh, the next person who worked under him was a, a gentleman named David Green, who then went on to become president of, of Colby. And then next was Catherine Bergeron, who's now president of Connecticut College. The next one was Maud Mendel, who's now president of Williams College. Huh. Um, and before me uh, was the person who is now the president of Carleton College. So when I think about it, Bob just took people, and five or six of us went on to become presidents of... So we wow. see each other at events, and we're always like, we're the Bob folks. So Bob was the next <laughs> great one. And then the final one was when, when I went back to Harvard... Uh, Jeremy Knowles was the the dean of arts and sciences, like the which oversees Harvard College and kind of the heart of Harvard. And what I learned from him was a completely different set of skills. He was one of the most elegant writers I've ever seen. And every email that came out of his office, every speech he gave, every essay he wrote was just beautiful. And I could see the effect it had on the campus and the power that he gathered simply because he was just such a beautiful writer and speaker. And um, whenever I'm writing a speech or writing an essay that might be in a magazine or will go out in the world, I always have Jeremy in my head, like, Jeremy, how would he put this? Mm -hmm. So I, I really had a string of remarkable mentors. Um, uh, Jeremy Knowles is no longer with us, but Bob and Ruth uh, remain um, close friends. Uh, I still call them up when I have an issue, and I, I take I take great advice from them whenever I can. Yeah. I'll get to uh, president interaction later <laughs> a little bit. But um, earlier this year, you unveiled the Third Century Plan, a comprehensive and long-term framework for Colgate University. And that plan's broken down into four sections, attracting and supporting outstanding students and faculty, strengthening the university's academic enterprise, enriching the student experience, and improving the campus and the environment. Why are these four pillars the most important in the decades ahead? Um, 
because they are the most important things. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny when I think about that plan and its production and the work that went into it, in many ways it was just a statement from Colgate that it was going to be excellent in the, in the things that are most important, which is the people, the program, um, the life we live here and where it happens. I mean, if, if I had to boil it down to its most essential, I view it all as a proclamation to the world that Colgate is going to be focused and uh, proud and driven for a long time. So I, I'm glad you used the word framework. Um, in many ways, it's 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 less specific than some other plans. If you go on most college web pages, you'll see you'll see some sort of plan, and they they can be really drilled in. This is um, more abstract. It's it's a, it says in each of the things that are essential to what we do, we're going to do at the highest level possible. Um, so those four, the, the the one that might strike people unusual if 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 someone from outside Colgate was, was looking at it would be the fourth category, the essentially the beauty of the campus. Mm -hmm. um, I think beauty matters. And I think coming to a campus that feels beautiful and, and well-maintained and uh, almost otherworldly at points uh, is valuable. Um, I also remain struck by Colgate's inherent beauty. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkably appealing place. So I've always thought that that's part of part of my job. And if you're specifically president of Colgate, if you're not thinking about its beauty, I think you're missing some essential element of what Colgate is. So if, if the one part that might strike people as unusual, if they're looking at it, it would be that. Um, but I'm not letting that go. No way. <laughs> I don't think anyone would argue about it. No. Uh, starting with the incoming class of 2024 mm. and retroactive to all other current students, mm. anyone with a household income of $125,000 a year or less will no longer have federal loans included as part of their Colgate financial aid package. This no loan initiative is a big change and will drastically change the lives of many students. Why was it important for Colgate to take this step? Wow. For so many reasons. Um, you know, we were looking at what's what would prevent people from coming to Colgate, and we we, and we looked at students we we admitted. We looked at um, a couple years of data, and we found that um, students in a certain income band, uh, even though we wanted them, weren't enrolling. And we kind of dug deep, and we we thought that we saw that um, we had, we had a heavier loan burden um, than the Ivies with which we compete in this space and a couple other institutions. And we realized that this um, was preventing students we wanted to come here and, and burdening them with loans. And then I, I actually, during the period when we were thinking about this initiative, I met with a group of students uh, who were carrying loans, uh, and they were up at the house. They knew that uh, they were invited because there were students with loans, so it wasn't as if this was some sort of surprise, and they were happy to talk about it. And I remember talking to or asking them, how would their experience here have been different if they weren't carrying student debt? And uh, one um, young woman answered in a way, and she, in a very interesting way, she sort of stumbled with her answer. Um, she kept trying to coalesce her ideas about what, what would be different if she didn't have loans. And she just finally turned to me and she said, I would be bolder. And I was like, there you go. She, and I, what, does that, what did that mean? And, and she, she, 
experiences student debt the way a lot of uh, students do, which is it's not just a personal debt, it's a family debt, that the whole family looks at um, one student's financial aid package and it affects another student's. And if you have, if you have few children, you're looking at this. And, and, and she was a student who very much looked at my debt is a debt that my family's carrying. Um, and it, to remove that from her meant that she, she would have studied abroad. She would have been a little more adventurous in some of her course selections. She would have been bolder. Um, so we saw that this was important. And then we also looked at um, what was happening on the campus, that if you are a family with $110,000 worth of income, say your father is a, or one of your parents is a high school principal and your other parent is a stay-home um, caregiver um, making family income of $110,000 and, and you have two or three children, Colgate wasn't available to them. And, and, and I thought, wait, these students aren't coming here. And that's a problem. That's a real loss. So we, we, we went to the budget and we found in our operating budget um, by really just finding as much money as we could, we took the loans away from everybody. Now, I'd love to take it away from everybody, which is something we're going to do. So, But um, I'm in the business of attracting talent and talent comes from every socioeconomic class. So um, we got to take this away and I want them all to be bold. Nice. Any, on any given day, you can read a news story about a college or a university struggling with issues related to race and class. Um, one of the principal components of the third century plan section focused on attracting and supporting outstanding students and faculty is the university's long-term vision for diversity, equity, and inclusion. How does a university address an issue so big and um, so fraught that society as a whole um, has had a hard time tackling with um, yeah, we're not going to solve racism during this podcast, but let me go back to the d diversity, equity, inclusion plan and the question. And this is how I think about it. Um, based on a lot of experience on lots of different campuses, I firmly believe that uh, God in his or her wisdom has arrayed talent evenly across various socioeconomic classes, across genders, across um, race and ethnicities, and across geographies. Um, you can talent is everywhere. E uh, extraordinary talent is rare, but it's also everywhere. There's not a single group or geography or type that has a monopoly on extreme talent. So that's my, f that's my full understanding. So if I think that if Colgate has policies, procedures, or practices, or culture that prevents us from seeing talent or prevents us from attracting it, then Colgate is diminished. The second thing I think about is once we have students, faculty, and staff here, if they're not supported and developing in all the ways that they ought to be, if they're not moving on as students, if they're not faculty doing research and teaching at the highest level, if they're not a staff member who sees, wow, I'm taking on greater responsibilities, then the university again is diminished. So again, if we have policies, practices, procedures, or a culture that prevents people from being fully developed, then the university's diminished. So I, I, I think people wonder whether or not a diversity plan has got political or ideological underpinnings that might be pernicious and and uh, ought to be rooted out. 
Um, I, I, I reject that because I actually think it's essential to our mission. I, I'm just trying to do what Colgate sets out to do at its highest level. And if that means I throw the net wider to attract talent and develop it, then that's what I have to do. So if bringing in a structure, bringing in people whose job it is, is to make sure we see talent, see it and, and nurture it, then that's what we're going to do. Um, your second question, which is a harder one, which is what do you do when there's a racial incident? We had one, um, our neighbors to the North Syracuse, really in a tough period. Um, you know, you acknowledge it. You just say, this happened. Mm -hmm. This is not right. This is, this is uh, not what we stand for. Um, you hear people out. Uh, we, when we had an incident this fall, we met with students. I ended up having students over my house for dinner probably each night for the next week. Um, and you do everything you can. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we live in a complicated world and, and we're not, the campus isn't immune from it. But when it happens here, you, I just think you look in the eye and address it. Did, you know, did we do well with the last one? Perhaps. Could we do better? Probably. Did we do poorly? No, I think we did well. Um, it just takes one ignorant or hateful person at three in the morning to write something on a whiteboard to harm a campus. Mm -hmm. So you just respond. I, I can't, you know, on any given day, there's about 5,000 people when you include visitors and everything all over this place. And they're, they bump into each other in, in sometimes hateful ways. And so you just try to unpack it. Also included in the third century plan is the development of a mind, brain, and behavior initiative, which could ultimately have a major impact on our world's understanding of brain function, from the cellular level to behavioral analysis. Why is this new effort important, and what sets it apart from other institutes that study the brain? You know, uh, initiatives have many origins, uh, and uh, luck, dumb luck, can play a role in much that we do in life. This is, uh, here's the story of what happened okay. here. Um, when the Host Science Center was completed 10 years ago, mm -hmm. um, we pulled out, we didn't, the university pulled out of the Olin Science Center, you know, a number of departments, leaving behind um, biological sciences, psychological and brain sciences, then called psychology, and a nascent neuroscience program. So one of the things that uh, was handed to me when I first arrived here was a report that the Olin Science Center was um, in, in disarray, disrepair, and that it needed uh, its HVAC, its air conditioning and heating system, removed and replaced. Uh, looking at the plans to replace the old HVAC system, which actually sits in the core of the building, uh, it was clear that we were going to wake up and have six or 7,000 square feet of new space in the middle of this building, in the middle of campus. As soon as the faculty in biological uh, sciences and psychological and brain sciences uh, said, hey, um, we do a lot of things with each other, and if you have this space that is going to open up, we want to intentionally create spaces for us to interact with each other. Then, because again, life is like this, uh, Spencer Kelly, who, who is, is you know, in one of these departments, 
um, had really developed a, a program about language acquisition in the brain, how, how language shapes thought. Um, and he was connected to some of the language programs. Well, then, we're, so we're thinking, you know, maybe we could do something with this. Well, then the philosopher said, um, we actually study the brain. We understand how you experience the world. We understand how you make sense of the world. So the next thing you knew, we had philosophers, language folks, neuroscientists, biologists, all saying, we study how one perceives the world, understands it, understands yourself in connection with that world, and that we could do something interesting with each other. Um, usually a, a liberal arts college would say, no, that's, that's too much to take on. But I've always said Colgate is bigger than most other institutions. The fact that that array of faculty is about 40-plus faculty. That, that most liberal arts colleges do not have that many faculty. All of us, you could say to yourself, we could have 40 to 50 people who are, who are looking at, from a completely liberal arts way, from multi-departmental ways, say, how do we see the world? How do we understand it? How do we understand ourselves? How do we understand personality? How does language shape who we are? Um, and it all started from a really bad air conditioning system. So, you know, again, I, I you know, I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm perhaps uh, halfway clever, but that's what we did. I really believe from an undergraduate standpoint, we could create a program that really looks at how you see the world in a way that's really unique. Um, you'll see a lot of brain science programs. Stanford is big. The University of Washington's big. Duke has moved into this space, really studying, um, uh, neural functions of the brain. They're doing deep, deep uh, research, NIH-sponsored um, research, a lot of lab work. Uh, we're going to do a much more liberal arts approach, which is, wait, I'm taking, I, under, I understand the chemistry of the brain. Now I took a course on charisma and personality, and I know these two professors, and now I can connect them. And then I took a course in philosophy on perception. I I, I don't know. It makes me want to go back to school. Right, so. <laughs> Um, so you kind of touched on this earlier, but you know, outside of your focus on the university's academic enterprise, you're also clearly focused on the campus environment. Mm -hmm. um, from the planting of 200 trees on campus this year, well, uh, earlier this year, and I guess part of last year, um, the construction of our new residence halls and career services building, mm -hmm. you're also intimately involved with the overall aesthetic of campus. Tell me about your interest in architecture and how you approach a new set of design plans when they cross your desk. <laughs> Um, I think it's interesting that you, that people know that I care about this because <laughs> I, I really do. I don't know where that came from. I have no idea where this interest in architecture, because I'm certainly not trained in it. Um, but again, my story about I knew I wanted to be on a campus, I always thought that campuses were distinctive and beautiful and, um, try to name a major world campus that doesn't have a core of uh, but distinctiveness, if not beauty, um, all of them in some particular way. And I happen to have attended a series of very beautiful campuses. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I care about the signage and the trees and the, the, the way the roads work and the buildings and the stone and the mortar. Um, so every time a design comes, I will spend hours on it. I drove, I drove people absolutely insane when we were building Benton Hall because the mortar wasn't right. The mortar was not right. Um, I won a masonry award. I, yeah, I did. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, 
So we've developed a principle with all the new buildings that when we have a design decision that we're not sure what to do, the chapel always wins. The chapel... Explain that. um, We were wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with the mortar on Benton. And we couldn't decide what to do, so we 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 mocked up. Uh, we <laughs> mock-ups were made of stone and mortar, and we brought them over the chapel. And because we couldn't decide on the site, whichever one looked closest to the chapel oh. becomes the 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 template for each design. Chapel standard. There's a chapel standard, and cool. well, you know, because uh, um, uh, one of the great theories of a campus is great campuses have one or two generals and lots of good soldiers. Um, and one of your jobs is actually to build really good soldiers. Um, when campuses have too many generals, they, they get, they're too noisy and they're too disturbing. So in my mind, the chapel is the general. And so all everything else has to be a good soldier to the general that is the chapel. And that's actually not a religious statement. It's just, yeah. it's the central building. And so um, I, what, I walk my dog every morning through the campus, and when we were building uh, Jane Pynchon and Burke Halls, um, Kevin, who was the project manager, um, I think I met him with my dog every morning at about 7.15 in the morning for just under two years. Um, paint samples, mortar samples, <laughs> roof samples. You know, I, maybe I could let that go, but I, I don't. It's a source of joy for me. It's a source of energy. Like when I finish those conversations, I, uh, I'm enlivened. Um, you know, we lit up Willow Path with lights. That stuff makes me happy, mm-hmm. and it makes other people happy. I have no idea where it's coming from. I'm not trained in this at well, all. So, so, you know, piggybacking on that, what, what is your favorite building on this campus, and why do you find it so interesting architecturally? What's my favorite building on campus? That's like picking your favorite child. I know. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel warmly toward Pynchon and Burke because I really felt spent a lot of time on them. And I look at them, like when I wake up in the morning, I open up my bedroom windows, I look at them. Um, probably my favorite building is Haskell. It sits there in the middle of a quad, which is a very unusual thing in an American campus plan to have a building sort of um, set that way. It's... Um, I think it's beautifully scaled. Uh, it's one of the few buildings uh, uh, along, along with James B. Colgate that has um, a different color sandstone matching with, uh, intermixed with the stone. I just think it's this fun little quirky building in the middle of a quad that is surprising and it has lots of strange angles and it, it's, it has a charm to it. Um, so that's, I like that. People are always surprised that a person who could have built something that looks like Burke and Pynchon likes Dana, but I like Dana. People don't people don't believe me, but Dana will one day be a beautiful building. Yeah. For it's people not, that don't know Dana is a brutalist architecture. Right? Very Paul much. Rudolph. Paul Rudolph, brutalist building that we have done everything in our power to uh, make more awful. <laughs> uh, we, no, it's 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 um it's it's a it's the whole building like many Rudolph buildings are a commentation a commentary on the nature of light and the and it, you're supposed to walk into that building and experience much like you do in a med- medieval chapel a volume of light mm-hmm. coming from the top into a very heavy building, which is what happens in cathedrals. Um, somewhere along the line, someone decided to 
block all the windows, put plywood over all of them. And then what's supposed to be a series of these levels in which you are supposed to experience being in the light, um, we blocked them all up and made them offices. So the thing that's the most inherent to the building is the thing that we most directly attacked. So if, if we just went into that building and removed all the stuff we've shoved into the middle of it, you would walk, you would walk in that building and your experience would be, wait, I'm walking, I'm in a tight space, and then all of a sudden that building would open up and it would be uplifting and joyful. Wow. Is that yeah. going to happen? Oh, yes. No doubt going to happen. Yeah. My least favorite building is Gatehouse. <laughs> I just had to put that out there. <laughs> a temporary structure temporary. that has been here for a few years. Yeah. Yes. Um, you've spoken at length about the importance of ritual and tradition in higher education. Why are these things so crucial to the student experience? And what is your favorite tradition or ritual at Colgate? Um, rituals and traditions are the way that a disparate complex group of people can belong to something um, by telling tales, by engaging in particular activities um, in common. It's a way for you to belong. Um, and the rituals that are, that are universally held are the most powerful. Um, so, you know, every year we take 750, 800 students who are coming from all over the country Ritual says you belong, um, you you partake, um, and so I think you know because I was so associated with the torchlight conversation, and I'm really happy that we um, you know brought that brought that forward. Um, my favorite part of that specific ritual isn't actually the torchlight ceremony because I'm actually in leading the front of that, and you know having 780 kids behind you with fire is actually um, it's 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 you know you spend your whole time going. Please, 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 please be safe. Um, it's when we gather afterwards under a massive tent and everyone's there. I love when everyone is in that tent and the parents are there and the, the kids are wound up. But there's a very specific moment of that ritual, which is because I'm leading um, the parade of students, the tent is empty when I get there. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a wave of students behind you, so it's um, it's very much like the first the scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when the when they get to the factory floor and they run around. It's hap This is now the third. Th I've done this three years. You you're in robes and these kids are sort of wound up and you you arrive in this massive tent that's set up with music and champagne and chocolate covered strawberries and it is exactly like the Willy Wonka scene because the kids don't know what to do with themselves. So the students just sort of they. They, they lose their minds a little bit. Um, so they just run around. And there's actually, there's a, there's a few minutes, actually several minutes before the families start coming in. So there's actually about a 15, 20-minute period where it's just the students and me mm -hmm. under a big tent. And, and a real big tent. And it's yeah. a how, really, how, really, it's like it's got its own area code. Yeah. It's, um, it's uh, that 15 or 20 minutes is really... It's it's unique. Uh, I get to do it, and it's it's a moment that I I love every year. Nice. So I'm guessing college presidents kind of keep tab on their peers. Right? <laughs> you probably look for like successes, yeah. missteps, challenges, how they're kind of working through issues on their campuses. So I'm not going to ask you to name any names, but in general, is there a common mistake you see pre presidents make at other colleges? Oh yes. Um, yes, you are very aware of other presidents, and you open up the news every day and you're like, oh, that's bad. <laughs> um, not listening. 
at, at the root of every time a president gets in trouble, I guarantee it, if you trace the story down, at some point, they're not listening. They're either not listening to students, they're not listening to the alumni, they're not listening to the parents, they're just not listening. Now, that just doesn't mean presidents have to like keep polling people, but every mistake always boils down to there was a moment where they didn't listen. Mm. Um, a subcategory of it is when presidents don't act. Most uh, sins of college presidents are sins of omission rather than commission. People... People will forgive uh, people who try to do something that maybe didn't work out. But when you when you have a problem on your own campus or in a department or and you don't do something about it and it festers, that's that's where it is. But um, but I do notice this. You can't make some of this stuff up. Um, and I've been in these situations where some little situation in one corner all of a sudden starts connecting to a situation in another corner. And then the sequence of events unfolds that are that's incredibly improbable. And next thing you know, you have a narrative in front of you, and you can't believe it. Um, maybe Torchlight was that. I never knew I was going to spend a year and a half of my life talking about torches. I, I, I was fully unprepared for it. But um, you, you get hit with these complex problems and situations, and you have these different... Um, constituencies that have different takes on it. So you just have to be pretty nimble. But but again, I, there's always a moment where a, a president doesn't listen. And I most most situations are that. And you know, I'm, I'm going through my own head of moments where I could have listened better. But that's it's almost always that. So if you've I imagine you've read through historical documents from Colgate and past presidents, some of their writings and things. I'm, I'm curious if there's anyone that stands out to you as someone who really nailed it. Hmm. And how have they influenced your work as Colgate's 17th president? Yes, actually. Uh, Jim Smith, who wrote the history of Colgate, mm -hmm. and I shared a love for this. Um, it, this will sound like sort of not a very interesting or uh, answer. Uh, I will every now and then see um, essays or columns or memos that Rebecca Chop wrote. And I'm like, huh, that's, and I don't agree with all her decisions. It's funny, it's funny because you do, you, I occupy an office that's filled with other people's voices. Um, but I would say she would write things and it, it, in, in, intriguing and with, a, with verve. Um, so that, the person who I, I think about and I think of moments, and I know her, which is, and I knew her before nice, I took the yeah. job. So maybe I'm a little attracted to that. But, um, you know, she made some really unpopular decisions. Um, she made some popular ones. But I always think she did it with um, intelligence. We're at question 13. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> question 13. All right. Um, so this episode uh, is going to air right around the new year. Huh. So I think it's only appropriate, and uh, this comes from our uh, esteemed audio engineer, Brian Ness, but what is the president's resolution for the new year? For the institution? For or... you. Well, I'll, I'll let you make that decision. I... Um, I'm terrible at resolutions. Me too. Terrible at them. I would say I want to read more. I want to, you know, um, so maybe I'll say I want to want to read more. Um, but if I... If I have a resolution for the institution is stay confident, 
This is exactly what happens after a plan is made. I've, and I've seen, I, by the way, I've written parts of plans. I've been on other campuses. There's always a moment when you write the plan, and then you, you always hit speed bumps. You always hit, oh, my God, this is so much more expensive than we thought it was going to be. Or, whoa, that didn't work out. Um, so I guess my, um, I guess my uh, New Year's resolution for the institution is to be persistently confident. Just be like, okay. Okay, let's just keep. We're going to run into challenges, you know, that uh, of our own making or of the world, and so I guess just stay the course. Um, and uh, my problem is, I get very down on myself. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not doing stuff. So maybe I'll try to be a little less hard on myself, but a little uh, more persistent. How's that? And and swim more. How about that? <laughs> there you go. That's great. That was 13. There you go. Thank well, you that so was much, President Casey, for being here today. Thank you for doing this. I think this is a great thing. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts or ideas. And let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. To learn more about what's going on in and outside the classroom at Colgate, visit colgateresearchmagazine.com or colgatemagazine.com. Also, I'd like to thank... Uh, Colgate student Kate Norton. She's a member of the class of 2020 uh, who helps with the research for the podcast. Have a wonderful week and a happy new year. And a happy new century. And keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories. 